inspiration, enlightenment, and insight on how to get what you want and how to keep it. We could have been anything that we wanted to be. And it's not too late to change it. We'd be delighted to give it some thought. Maybe you'll agree that we really ought to. And now, here are your hosts. Paul Williams and Tracy Jackson. Good morning, Paul Williams. Good morning, or good afternoon, whatever time you're listening to this. Tracy it could be the Jackson. Evening. You could be an insomniac, and you could be listening to this at four exactly. in the morning while you're sleeping. You your could be driving. We're dri- getting white line fever right now, driving down the highway on your way to Memphis because you told Nora you'd meet her there on Wednesday. What are you talking about? Oh, I don't know. I just, you know. But, well, the guy driving to meet Nora in Memphis is going, how the hell did he know I knew? But and he better not tell Ethel back home. Back home. We that you're off to me. Okay. You know what so we, it's coming up on Halloween. Halloween. Trick or treat. Are you going out trick or treat? Are you going to dress up like You know Paul what? I, it's my least favorite. Uh, the, no, the it's two, not. The two, New Year's Eve I is your least favorite. I think we actually talked about this. My uh, my least favorite. We've talked about everything at this we've point. We're like my an least old favorite uh, holidays have to be the, the 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 and it's because of the noise factor. It's it's the Fourth of July and Halloween because my I get my cats in and hide them on Halloween because it's just crazy and scary and. I, I would think Halloween. New Year's Eve would be your least favorite. Yeah, oh, yeah, New Year's Eve. Well, yeah, New Year's Eve is, you know, I'm working uh, this New Year's Eve. I'm doing a huge private party in Colorado. So Are you? I am, and I very seldom do that anymore. Where in Colorado? Aspen. You're flying to Aspen for New Year's Eve? I am. Wow. Yeah. So some rich person hired you to sing at their party. Some fantastic person who cared enough about what I do to, <laughs> to spend an arm and a leg to fly me there. Fly exactly. Well, and my band, and your band. Well, that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Well, it's cool because my daughter lives in Colorado, that's so you. I can see Sarah and her partner Aspen's Lee. Quite beautiful. Her, her her spouse Lee. That time. Well, coming up, we're coming up to Halloween. Halloween is not my favorite holiday, actually. Well, you know, New, you know, because I live in New York, and Halloween is very weird in New York because I grew up in California. And I grew up in Santa Barbara where everybody went all out. And we would go. My mother would take us trick-or-treating. And my mother would dress up, too, I think, until I was a certain age. That's and frightening, she, I thought. No, Wait, no, she, no, would, she, she got into the spirit. I got to give her yeah, credit. Yeah. You know, she dressed up. And she, she, my mother loves to dress up anyway. But she would dress up in a costume, too. And she would take would us trick-or-treating. Would she do a Chinese costume? No, she wasn't into Chinese then. I remember her as a goat. I remember one year her costume didn't work. And then she just put a sheet over her head and said, let's go, girls. Um, so we went. and and But in Santa Barbara, they would do. And she loved it. But she, they would, you know, in my, they would just be, it was so elaborate. You know, they'd turn these houses into haunted houses and they would give you giant silver dollar. I just phenomenal. And, yeah. and they'd answer the door and they, it was just a big deal. And, you know, in New York, it's so sad because kids walk around apartment buildings. Sure, sure. And, you know, you got, and, and they Florida, give you, Florida, and what Florida, they, Florida. well, yeah, what they do is they, in your building, they give you a, sign up sheet so if you're going to be home you can answer the door and if you're not you go don't knock on my door you're going to be a curmudgeon so you can't be a curmudgeon or if you don't really want the kids you say candy outside so you have these three choices and so you leave a bowl of candy outside your door and perhaps some greedy kid will come and just dump the whole thing in and then you just look cheap like there's no candy in front of your door or you can give out candy but there is something really sad about it and I used to take my kids. There's a couple neighborhoods where they where they make it, you know, in, with townhouses where they dress them up and and they do the whole thing. And I'd take my kids there when they were little. Now they don't make me do that, obviously. But there is something very tragic, I think, about trick or treating in a 
30-story building in Manhattan. I'm sitting here trying not to have the giggles because I'm remembering something that is so funny. And what? it's in, in Pendulet's book. What? Pendulet, great Halloween oh, story. Oh, you're thinking about him in that Pen- Oh, Pen- goes to, to his daughter's school to read when she's about five, you know. And it's Halloween, so he decides he needs to wear a costume. So he puts a sheet over his head and cuts eye holes in it, which he points out looks exactly like the KKK <laughs> person rolling It's a very funny school. picture. It's so funny. My God. God, it's hilarious. He's you know? a funny guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you're not going to go out trick or treating. I wonder how many people dress up like Phantom, like like Swan. I, I you could do Swan exactly. I could, but no, no. But but to jump to jump, you know, uh, away from Halloween and, and to talk about somebody who is who is a really really interesting cat who is in the now and a part of the digital world that we're dealing with. Who is coming up today, Tracy Jackson? This was your idea. It was my idea, because I found this guy. Well, I didn't find him. He was big famous. Bill Powers, William Powers. I, I, I came across William Powers because I read his book, Hamlet's Blackberry. Hamlet's Blackberry. And I was so blown away by this book. I've, well, you know, because I, I jabber. There's a couple books I jabber on about endlessly to people. Uh, as you know, I'm obsessive, and I don't shut up when I get onto something. And and Hamlet's Blackberry just turned my head around and made me think about the world entirely differently, which is the power of a really good book. Even though it's 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 a power a, powers, and I and I so I started writing about it, and I wrote a blog about it, and then I tweeted it, and then he Bill saw the tw- the blog on my Twitter, and then he started following me, and I started following. So you digitally you digitally connected digitally to talk connected, and discuss his and work then about we became, digital. I think this was two or three year, three years ago, maybe, and then we were became, you know, uh, digital pals. Uh, I think we became Facebook friends, and then when we got this podcast, one of the first people I wanted to interview from the get go, I said I want. It was partially because a lot of what Bill talks about is our addiction to the internet and and how we can live productive lives. I mean, we, but what's great about Bill is he's balanced. He doesn't say give it all up. He loves Twitter. Well, he loves all of it. I mean, he works he works yeah. now at MIT in, in in technology. You know, Bill understands that to move forward, you need to go with the program balance. and 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 it's balanced and balance, that all through history balance. we've progressed and that's part of what his book's about. But at the same time, you need to carve out that quiet space where you can hear yourself think and He's, hear your He thoughts. begins the book with a, with a wonderful, even though it's a book that's nonfiction, he begins it with a fictional metaphor that is a very, very short little story that I think is perfect. He talks about this, imagine this huge globally sized room where everybody in the world was in this room and you're walking around and everybody's poking you like you're being poked now on digitally online. But these, this, somebody decides that they want a little quiet time, time for themselves and, and he starts looking for a way out. It's, it's a wonderful little story that is, I think, a great example of what life feels feels like sometimes in the digital age when you're always the tweets are coming in the facebook you know the 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 email do you get overwhelmed because you're you're like online i mean we're both online all the time yeah do you get overwhelmed ever i've never seen you get overwhelmed by your internet you know i have serenity i have you know like i'd use the serenity prayer and 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 then you go right back online and i go right back online and see if i have any new followers yeah let's talk to the wonderful william powers coming right up Good morning, Bill Powers. Good morning. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning, Paul. How are you guys? We're, We're great. Good. We're really pleased. To, our first question is, do, is, do we address you as Mr. Powers, William, or Bill? Or Doc- oh, Bill, please. Bill. Bill, I'm so excited because you and I have been 
communicating for a couple of years online and never actually spoken to each other. I know. I feel like we've actually met in person, but not even close. Not even probably in the same <laughs> state, but you are. I have to say this now, and I'll probably say it in the intro. You are one of my favorite writers. I have three books, Bill, that I recommend or actually buy. I don't buy a lot of books for people because it's hard to buy books for people. You don't really know their taste always. I yeah. buy, there's three books that I feel every person should read. And they are? Okay. Well, I feel that they should read Marie Kondo's book, The Fine Art of Decluttering, because it is very zen and we should all get rid of a lot of stuff. Yes. That book is huge. Yes. And I love it. And she, I, I adore Roman Kasnarak's book, How to Find Fulfilling Work. I think it's... Oh, I don't know that. You know, but you know the School of Life in London... You know that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yep. he wrote a book for that. And that's really about how we all, in this generation, change our careers over, over a lifetime. That people just sort of aren't a doctor forever and then retire or a lawyer forever and retire. That we, have, we, right. we wear many hats, this generation, throughout our lives. Mm-hmm. And the third book, and maybe probably the most important, is your book, Hamlet's Blackberry. Because I think everybody who lives in this era, and we all do needs to read it to find out how to survive the technological age. You've written probably one of, for, for me, one of the most important books of our time. I uh, say that, oh, and I don't say that to blow smoke up your ass. I really mean it. Thank you so much. That means so much. And you already blogged about it so generously, so I'm just thanking you all over again, Tracy. It well, here's, really means if, a lot to me. If I could jump in, I have to say if this. Yeah, Polly loves I, to see, jump in. Get used to it. Yeah, well, and so does she. You, you'll find we fight for your attention here and all. But the other thing is I believe in past lives, and I think that if there's anybody that I've ever met in my entire life that had one of Shakespeare's tablets, <laughs> Tracy Jackson probably had a collection because she loves little notebooks. She loves it. And as I'm listening to you talk about, about Shakespeare's his little tablets, plural, but it's in fact it's one thing that you can write on and erase. She would never erase. She would write on <laughs> Shakespeare's tablet, put it over, pick up another one, and there'd be a collection of them and all. So. Oh, I love it. Thank you, Paul. And can I just jump in and say, you guys, your book is fantastic. I read it in preparation for our podcast. I, you were so kind to send it. It is unbelievably inspiring. And Paul, like Tracy, I grew up with your amazing songs, and I'm just so honored to meet you in this way. Well, thank you. I've been a friend of Bill for 25 years now. I Now I can say I'm a friend of Bill's, you know, so <laughs> I'll, I'll add right. this to that and all. That's very kind. And and I have to tell you that, that I'm equally fascinated, as Tracy is, with, with your, your thoughts and all about the power of the disconnect. I mean, the, the, you, the, you tell a story about being on the phone with your mother that is so wonderful about where it was and you actually called her to tell her you you weren't going to be able to meet with her i have to jump over paula here we have to just because nobody in our we know what we're talking about and bill knows what we're talking about See, this is going to go on a lot bill but the people who are listening to this podcast don't know what we're talking about right bill i would love you to explain as you probably are you've got it down to a science and, and 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 is hamlet's blackberry what's it about Right. So Hamlet's Blackberry, which um, came out in 2010, but still very much in print, and I'm still speaking about it and traveling around it a lot, so it's still got a life, um, is about the challenge of living in a hyper-connected world, basically, this, this amazing thing that the digital revolution has done for us and to us, connecting us 24-7, which has so many wonderful sides. But as you guys know, and as I know all too well, it has downsides which is we have lost the ability to have quiet time, 
to kind of tend to our inner selves, which is one of my big life mantras, is remember your inner self. Remember to be there. Remember to spend some time there with yourself. Because I think everything that happens in the outer world begins in our inner world, in our own personal space inside there. Um, and so I found myself overconnected, addicted to my devices, um, losing touch with my own family and the very house I was sharing with them because we were just staring into screens all the time. And my book is an effort to solve that problem in a way that would work for not just me, but anybody reading it. And what I do, um, as you guys know, is I go back in history to seven previous tech revolutions, analogous to this one. And I discover, as I did in my research for the book, that people in each one of those times in history were struggling with this exact challenge of being connected by some kind of device, even if it was the printing press, in a new way that felt overwhelming to them, despite all the benefits. And I find ways that they used, I discover from their writings and things they left behind practices and ways of thinking about technology and about connecting and disconnecting that were valuable to them that basically helped them grow and get the most out of a time like this without becoming a victim of it. So that's the, that's the basic story. The Hamlet's Blackberry part is from a moment in Hamlet, the play by Shakespeare, where Hamlet basically talks about this issue of having a mind that's too cluttered because he was living, to, Shakespeare was living through the print revolution and that was a hard time and he worked that into the play um so that's where the title came from and i'm happy to talk about my mom for a moment Do you guys want me to recount oh, that oh story? yeah I, I will i want you online i want you like all day long in here we can't we don't have that we, <laughs> but yeah tell that story and then and then we're going to move into the seven philosophers of the screen so talk yeah because right. your mom is the jumping off point for the book it's when you you have an epiphany paul's right right it? yes so in writing the book, you know, I started with the stories that I was telling myself over and over again about this challenge because I felt I should share them with the reader. And one of those stories that I kept coming back to in my mind was this moment where I was driving to see my mom. She lives a couple hours from me. I was catching a flight, actually, and just seeing her on the way. And I realized I was late and we weren't going to have much time together. Maybe I was going to miss seeing her altogether, but I just had to call her and tell her I was late. So I'm driving the car. It's legal to talk on the cell phone in Massachusetts. I have to say, so I was fine to call her. Um, and driving along, talking to my mom, and we had a great conversation. You know, as we always do, brief, but, you know, pleasant. I told her the news. She was fine. She's used to me always being late. And um, she said, okay, I'll see you when I see you, basically, and we hung up. And after I hung up the phone, just driving along by myself on the highway, um, I had this other moment of connectedness happen with my mom that sort of blossomed where just because I'd heard her voice and we'd been connected in that brief way by the device, all these memories of my mom came flowing back. My mom, when I was a kid on the beach, reading a book under a beach umbrella, you know, just little images of my mom that I have stored away in my hard drive somewhere. And it became very powerful for me and emotional, this connection I was feeling as I drove along. And, you know, I'm, I'm almost tearing up a little telling you the story now and it just all came back to me how much she means to me me how much she means to me and what a great person she is and the 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 miracle of that moment is that although it began with a connection through a device it only happened after i hung up the device after i turned it off 
And that's when the real connection happened, which is kind of interior for me. And that's sort of one of the themes of my book and one of the themes I see all throughout history, which is great to be having all those connections and, and, and messages from people and updates from them and ability to reach out to them and be reached out to at any moment. But at a certain time, you kind of have to go inward with that stuff and really be with them in a way that's not such a literal connection because that's where all the richness is in our memories, in the stories we tell ourselves about our loved ones, about our friends, these people who help us get through life and who get through it with us together. And you got to have some disconnection. Paul, you said it. It's the disconnect. The disconnect matters as much as the connect. And that's the theme I keep coming back to over and over again, is in, in, in a world of hyper-connectedness, we all have to master the art of disconnection on a regular basis. Don't, Bill, do you also find it, and you talk about this in the beginning with Plato and Socrates, and it does get, it goes, you pick it up again throughout the book, um, and that Socrates is worried that people would stop creating and stop remembering properly, and if they weren't telling stories, and you'll be able to explain it better than I do, that a type of thought would stop happening and a type, a type of creativity. And I find with myself, especially when I'm trying to come up with new ideas or I'm working out storylines and things in my writing, if I don't shut it all off, or oftentimes now it happens at the gym because the gym, they take the phone away. But is if I don't have that quiet, I can't create and I can't think. I cannot think with the noise. I, can, I mean, I can't, I can't think of new things. I can't go to new places. I can't go to new ideas. They just don't come with all that jabber in the, in the background right. and foreground. Yeah, so I have obviously exactly the same thing happened. Tracy, this is one of the things that drove me to write the book. You summarized Socrates' point of view very well, but I have oh, to add you. one thing. Yes, sure. <laughs> I've I mean, said that I, about her. <laughs> no know, one ever I, said I've that to asked, me before, Bill. <laughs> I've been asked questions about that book for five years, and you actually put it better than anybody ever has. Um, but there's one thing I have to add for listeners for context, which is the thing Socrates was worried about in his time was the alphabet. <laughs> the alphabet had... It had basically just been invented. It had arrived in ancient Greece. And people in that time, believe it or not, felt overwhelmed by suddenly these papyrus sheets were, running, were floating around with words on them. And they had been used to just talking everything out, oral tradition. And they were really feeling information overload. And Socrates took it to an extreme. And his critique, he said, don't mess with that alphabet stuff. It'll ruin your mind. Just like you said, great. Tracy. No more creativity, no more remembering. It's going to destroy everything. So he was living through a transition like this one where he kind of took the negative, you know, and really pushed it hard. He was quite advanced in years when he took this position. And there are some people today in the digital age, not necessarily just older people who have that position. I think those people tend to be wrong in the end. And in fact, Socrates was clearly wrong. You know, look at all the things the alphabet has done for us. But we all do feel that thing that you feel at the gym and we all feel just walking down the street if we've been using our devices for the previous hour, you know, my mind is full of all this information and it's all racing around in there and I kind of can't slow down. And that's why we have to do a disconnect. In Socrates' time, the way to do it, and he does it in one of the dialogues that I recount in that chapter, is to just take a walk outside the city walls of Athens. And when he did that, he found that all the 
kind of freedom, inner freedom and sense of ability to think clearly and create and do all those things he was good at came back just because he learned how to disconnect. And Plato kind of told him to get with the program, right? Well, Plato effectively did. Plato, his student, did because Plato, thank God, disobeyed Socrates and wrote everything down that he said. That's why we have it, right? <laughs> That's the only reason we have it. Yeah, so it's this miracle of a kind of rebellious student giving us possibly the greatest philosophy in history because he didn't pay attention to what the philosopher was recommending. One of the things that you talk about, though, is the way we adjust to these things. And, and one of the things in my own life, I'm busier at, at 75 than I probably have ever been in my life and all. And He's also the, such a phone. I'm just going to share a little thing with you, Bill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of all my friends, and Paul's my best friend, I don't have anyone except my daughter who's 15 who's quite the phone addict that Paul Williams is. Oh, I'm totally, uh, I, I'm totally addicted to my screen, absolutely and all. But this he is took a, his phone on Oprah with us. Can you believe it? <laughs> well, well, I wanted to it? see if, you know, if I'd got any new followers while I was talking to Oprah, you know. Yeah, but it's, is it the it, voice? Ego is a huge part of it. Of course ego is a huge part of it. And he's also in love with Siri. But here's, but here's the, 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 an observation that I'm making about my own life, which I think you, you talk about the, the fact that we do adjust to, uh, to uh, you know, whatever the new platform of information coming in, whatever the, new, the, the news, the, you know, and we're in the midst of this huge, huge transformation with, with social media and with the internet and all. But one of the things I'm finding in my own life is that at the busiest time of my life, when I sit down to do, in a, in a small window of time to do something you know, creative, writing a song for the musical I'm working on or, or working with a, a blog or whatever, is that it seems to pour out of me in a, in a, in a, great, in a quicker window, in a smaller window, more quickly than any any other time in my life. I'm amazed at, at how quickly I managed to create at this point. And I wonder if it's not an, an adjustment to, you know, if it's, if it's not just an adjustment to the pressure, it's an adjustment to the, to the, to the, to the lifestyle of, you know, of, of suddenly being, being in a world where I am bombarded by all this information and my unconscious is doing, the, is doing the work or whatever like that, and I have this small window, it pours out of me. Any thoughts about that, Bill? So, Paul, you're asking, in a way, is this kind of an upside of the digital age that we're able to create in tighter windows, right? Yes. Yeah, I think there's something to that. You know, even since my book came out five years ago, I have found that I'm getting better at recognizing that the boundaries, you know, the time boundaries have narrowed for me to get things done because I have more to attend to. And, you know, humans are very adaptable. And so I think that as we move into this, you know, further into this digital revolution, we're all adapting. And those of us who weren't born into digital, which is all three of us, obviously, um, are kind of catching up to the younger people. And so I think that's a great thing. I now work at MIT, at the MIT Media Lab, actually developing some new technologies, some of them kind of coming out of the philosophy of my book. And I do see that the folks here who, who have been working with this stuff for more, many more years than I have are really efficient about using their time because they're hyper-connected people sort of all the time. But I am also noticing that as the revolution progresses, there is a lot more of an audience for getting some of that disconnect into the equation and making sure it's not missing because without some of that, I think, not to sound like Socrates, but I think that the creativity can vanish altogether. You know, it's not just the creativity I find, Bill, and and that's part of it. I find, and I was even going to say this question for later, but it just kind of dovetailed where we are now. What I find is when I go, and we all, we're guilty of this. You know, I go 
from my office and then I get in the elevator to go to lunch, say, or a meeting, and I immediately check my telephone, even if I've been standing away from my desk for four minutes. And if you mm-hmm. look around the elevator, all you see, you used to see people sometimes if they don't want to get eye contact, they would stare at the numbers. Now, mm-hmm. every single person in an elevator is always staring at their device. You know, um, I find that when I do this too often and I go in to see how many likes I got on Instagram, how many emails I got, did people like the blog or pe- my heart starts racing. I, yeah. I mean, I literally find that I get and I tend to, I have an anxiety issue to begin with, but I, I do know, and it's physiological, but I find that this really sets it off and I start getting really speedy and nervous. And if I put the phone down and stay away from it for a couple hours, I really do calm down. Yeah. So you're kind of pointing to the the physical dimension that's very separate from the creative, right? Yeah, but I think it's very yeah. important because I think it's isn't there, there's a dopamine thing and there's like a rush you get and when it keeps coming, I find that it makes me a little crazy and yeah, I'm a little so crazy to begin with. So you know. Yeah. So that you're absolutely right, Tracy. There is absolutely the dopamine reward that we get for looking at the screen, which goes back to this primitive programming that has nothing to do with communication. It was just the ability to scan the wilderness and see if there were any, you know, wild animals threatening us, basically, before we were we were living in protected houses and so forth. That's still there, and it's, it pays us to pay attention to novelties, and that's why we get the little dopamine scores. So that's drawing you back. But another thing is happening with that kind of nervousness you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, and that's actually a stress um, response. And there's a wonderful researcher named Linda Stone, who's been doing great thinking about our digital lives for a couple decades now. She's, she's out there online, easy to find. And she coined a term for this. She called it email apnea. And basically what happens is when we start doing these tasks online that are related to our social lives, our work lives, all these things that are kind of stressful and have a lot of obligations and things around surrounding them, we begin to do this shallow breathing. And I noticed once, once I read this in Linda Stone's work before I got to know her, I realized I do that. I start doing this shallow kind of nervous breathing. And it actually affects how you breathe, as you know, affects your whole physiology. And the shallow breathing itself actually bumps up the stress level so that you started stressed out when you were attending to your messages and then you get even more stressed out because of the way you're breathing. So that is very real what you're describing. And I just took a huge breath when you said that. It was so, <laughs> like I had been concentrating and not breathing. But then, yeah. and then, and then, Bill, and, and then we, need, we. I'd love you to tell us about how we can get some of this in check. It's the other thing, and, and I, and it's helpful. You know, I, I have this conversation with my husband sometimes when he's, and he's still on a BlackBerry, actually. You know, uh, but, mm-hmm. but he'll be, we'll be at dinner, and he's good about it because we're not like those couples that sit there and totally stare at their devices, which you do see in restaurants, which I find completely appalling, where you see a couple having dinner and they're both looking at their devices all through the meal. But he'll say, you know, I can get work done. I can spend more time at home. I can leave the office early. I can take more trips. I can do all these things because I can do it from afar, which is true of all of us. I mean, you moved, you can talk about that too. You moved to the, a bit further out in the country with your wife and your Mm -hmm. son so you could have a more relaxed environment when you can do your work from there. Um, so we do have all these advantages, except what I find is you take 
you take your work to dinner. You know, before that, people used to go out to dinner. And when you have kids, I don't know about how your son is, but I know with my girls, it's, you know, their boyfriends are there, their friends are there. You know, even if you're alone, yeah. all of a sudden, oh, so-and-so just broke up with so-and-so. And now there's this huge drama. Yeah. And all of a sudden, my 15-year-old's involved in some drama that would have normally happened maybe at home or the next day at school or on the phone in our generation. Right. And it brings all of, all of life travels with you wherever you go. One of the and 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 it's very difficult. I it's it's it's. <laughs> I find it annoying um, a lot of times, actually. One of the things that I think is is probably going to is evolving is 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 the diminishing of of memory skills because as I sit with my friends, I mean, it, we had there's the podcast that's up this week is, is Cheech and you know Cheech Marin and and Tracy and I sitting and having a conversation and as we're talking about things that happened in the 70s we're mentioning a movie or some actor in a movie whatever and we don't we don't remember a name and all of us reach immediately no, for, that's you for too. A, well because you two did a lot of drugs i remember <laughs> <laughs> no no actually you actually once in a while you stumble into it as well even though you were a t- well, pretty much a, of a that's that's another bill work. question but bill how do you deal with the let's go back one second and then we're going to do with what google does to your mind too cuz that i think really screws up your memory but what what do you do about this whole thing of people taking their work to dinner and taking their work on holiday and taking their work to couples taking their work to bed? You know, all of a sudden, I mean, right. it's not, a, it, you know, it's not uncommon for a couple to be in bed and all of a sudden the light goes off and someone turns over and checks their machine, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's actually, this is a kind of a, the most practical manifestation in a way of this challenge that I write about in the book, this overconnectedness, where it not only jumbles up you know, your head in an abstract way. It literally jumbles up your whole life where your work is everywhere, all your friends are everywhere, all these all these aspects of life that used to be relatively discreet are now all mashed up. And that's very hard to navigate. It's like this constant traffic jam that you described, Tracy, and it's a lot. And I am now confident, after several years of talking about this book, that it's not just our generation, the three of us, that are struggling with this. As you know, Tracy, I have a 17-year-old, He's a senior in high school now, and uh, the principal of his school recently gave a talk to the whole school about mindfulness and about mindfulness practices, and my son came away from that and said to me, Dad, you used to talk about Zen books and how much you enjoyed reading about Zen. Can, Can you share a few of those with me? So I gave him a couple of Zen books, and it's all he talks about now. And it's for this very reason. He's a teenager living in a digital world with all these apps, messages constantly coming in. And I don't care if they disappear on Snapchat after X minutes. They're coming in constantly, so that doesn't help that much. He's trying to learn how to be more of a Zen person in order to deal with it. So we're all having to master it. And that's where I come back to my basic theme of disconnection. But we should do the memory topic. Well, yeah, and then and then I want to go into the seven philosophers. There's so much. Does Google and Paulie? I mean, Paulie, we all do it. I mean, my husband, who's one of the smartest people I know. I mean, but you, well, you're, you and my husband, probably the two smartest people I know. <laughs> uh, no, but he, isn't that true, Glenn? I mean, Paul. I mean, Glenn. Oh, yeah, really, Glenn is Glenn is, is, tr- Glenn is amazingly bright, informed, intellectual. And I mean, he, he, we spend all of meal. He'll like, Google it. I mean, any any question that comes up now. People Google it, right? Is right. this affecting, and I, th- I was thinking about this this morning because I was doing research on, on something else, and I started to Google it. Does this, if, in, an, in another t- era, if we had a question about something, history, something literary, whatever, we might have gone to a book. We might have gone yep. and, and actually read a book about it. We might have, if we'd had a question about the Civil War, if we'd had a question about 
Ginsburg, whoever, right? We would yeah. have gone to a book. We might have gone to the encyclopedia and read a little more than Wikipedia, which is I find is wrong half the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that Wikipedia, to get your information from there, is probably the worst thing people can do half the time. Do, do you think that now people, they don't read as much, we know that for a fact, and they don't research in the same way unless they're scholars or academics. So what has it done to people, both their memory and their their desire to learn more than a couple sound bites about a topic. Right. So just one tiny correction, Tracy. I think people are actually reading more than ever, but it's not books and long articles. It's these little bite things, you know, right. texts and messages and all that. So right. it's sad. It's become a less valuable in the long haul kind of reading that they're doing. I think that we are changing our skill set in a way. I don't know that in the long run it's going to be a massive tragedy. We don't know yet. I mean, a hundred years ago, there's already been a big transition like this in modern times, which is in the 19th century and early 20th century, people grew up learning to memorize things like long poems. That was part of everyone's education that you could, you know, do the charge of the light brigade or whatever these poems were. Well-educated people just had phenomenal memories and were trained to have phenomenal memories because there were no, there weren't so many devices to record things. And you often had to speak off the top of your head about things that you couldn't just go to a library and look up. And so that kind of went away even before we came along because there was more stuff accessible even, you know, in the pre internet age just because we had you know radios blaring information at us and reminding us of things and we had TVs and there was just more information floating around and we weren't all dependent on these sort of inert sources so that's already happened and now a new thing is happening where we kind of don't have to onboard so much information to recall it later and we can go to the device and so we've outsourced our memories basically to a certain extent and I don't know where that's going to wind up. It's troubling to me in the same level as I can tell it is to you guys. But on the other hand, it's all accessible. So isn't that okay? I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think when you put us guys, you know, you, Paul, and myself um, mm-hmm. into it, and, and we're all like sort of one or two generations apart but of the same generation. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. You and I are the same age. Um, and, yep. and, and Paulie's like the hippest person. I'm, at the, I'm, at the, I'm the geezer element yeah, in the you're, conversation. But you're, you're a hipster geezer. You're, you, you, you're, I'm a hip geezer. You're a hip geezer. Um, I worry more about our kids because we, are, we all did learn in a different way. You know, I, I don't, for instance, I'm a terrible texter and my children are constantly after me. They think I'm really rude because right. if they ask me a question and they both constantly text me, that's their form of communication. And right. I don't love to... You call them back. Well, I don't love long texting. Do you, Bill? Are you someone who loves to text long texts? I'm a big texter. I like doing the long text. Yep. You I'll do? Confess. Okay, yep. so, so tell yep. me why. Well, I find that, um, I don't know, I find text to be wonderfully endearing kind of amazing thing that happens where I have these, you know, I would never have more than a few going at one time, but right there in my pocket, I have these really private conversations going on with these individuals who I care about usually, you know, people I text with tend to be loved ones, and 
And now the emojis have added this whole other level of kind of sweetness <laughs> and expressiveness to it. You're reading my so, mind. I was going to go there in just a moment about yeah, emojis. Paul will text yeah, entirely in emojis. To... Paul will give you like 27 I emojis. I send flowers and hearts and everything. I am I am the most, I'm the Jiminy Cricket of the digital age. I love all that stuff. You know, one, one of the things that's most interesting, I think, that is evolving out of this is, is that, you know, I heard a wonderful uh, Can we let him finish about his, his texting? Okay, go ahead. All right, I yeah, thought yeah, he no, was just, done. No, no. Go on, go on. No, I just have one personal sentence to add to this, which is my son actually went away to boarding school three years ago at age 14. So he's not with us in the house, you know, most of the year. And he comes home some weekends and so forth. But he's really went away to college, you know, earlier, effectively. And so that's a big factor of staying in touch with him. And I love that he can check in with me anytime and say, Dad, I'm really stressed out. You know, can we talk? Or, you know, this whole college thing is driving me crazy. I hate it. You know, all caps. And it's almost like we get to share a little more of our interior lives with each other than we ever would have been able to 20 years because of the texting. You so think, you think more than, I mean, if you compare that and you, and you take it back to your conversation with your mom, who probably doesn't right. text, and the feeling you got from your mom, do you, do, you, do, you, do you put a connection there? Do you think they're similar but different? Do they, you know, because I know that I won't hear from my children as much if I don't text. Because they don't email. I mean, my my, right. my, my, my husband only emails, so my daughters think that's right. really retarded, and they'll text me to tell him something. Um, right. And they will, and, and much like your son, like Lucy will text me during the day, oh, my God, my chemistry teacher's driving me crazy. Oh, my God. I, you know. and, and they think I'm rude because I text back almost monosyllabically. You know, I'll say, yup, or okay, right. or see you later. And the other day they actually said, you put periods in your texts. Why do you do that? You know, cause I'll write full <laughs> sentences because I, I said, because I don't speak grammatical text. I mean, that's not my language. And so right. they'll think I'm mad at them. They'll go, mom, are you mad? And I go, no, I'm just tech. I, I don't, I just said, I answered you. What do you want? You want a sonnet? I, but, but I know I wouldn't hear from them as much, but would I, but do I hear from them in shorter spurts and differently? You know, it, I still haven't figured that out in my brain. It is different. I would, I would link it to the mom, my mom conversation in that it is an intimate um, exchange I get to have with people I care about deeply. And, and also, in both cases, some of the best benefits of it are when I'm reflecting afterwards and it's over. And I think about, like, my son and I are big jazz music fans, and we send each other back little snippets from SoundCloud or YouTube or whatever. Of whatever. Have you seen this Coltrane? I never noticed it before. It's really obscure. You're going to love it. You know, and then I'll listen to it. Have you heard it, that is? And then I get to enjoy it you know, after we're not texting anymore. And I get to think about him, and that's the beauty of it for me. Does, does he email you? Is he an emailer? He emails me, but that's all the business stuff. The texting is more the personal. You also speak as very lovingly about some of the relationships and some of the some of the, uh, the your moments on uh, you know, on Twitter. That, that I was surprised. That you, that you had a wonderful podcast with uh, Doug. I'm not sure of the last name, Doug. Uh, is it, 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 the name is gone? But you were talking about the guy from the Art of Manliness. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, a lovely, a lovely podcast. And you were talking about about the fact that you'd had a really meaningful exchange with some people that you really don't know uh, on yeah. Twitter right before that episode. And I was, I was. I was honestly a little surprised to hear how lovingly you spoke of your Twitter relationships because I have people that I, I tweet back and forth with that I really care about and I, don't, I wouldn't recognize them and you know, if they walked in the room and bit me I wouldn't recognize them but we have nice exchanges 
Yeah, I have that thing on Twitter. It sounds like you have, Paul, that is really beautiful. Um, where I, It's kind of a, a, a friendship of sensibility where I don't know these people. 99% of them don't know them personally. But we found each other because we're interested in some of the same things. It might be, in my case, it might be books. It might be writing. It might be journalism. It might be music, actually. Sure. And, and a wonderful feeling of some of these people, I think I said this in that podcast, some of these people, every single thing they tweet is valuable to me. We have such a taste overlap. Yeah, nothing is wasted. Is nothing is wasted. Amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. one. You know, and and for me, it's it's interesting because you know my life is is compartmentalized. I, there's a lot of stuff going on about recovery. That I'm because I'm head of ASCAP. There's a lot of stuff around intellectual property, which is a great conversation. I'd love to have with you about the way that this this age of, of the digital age has affected the ability to make a living with your creativity and all. So there's there's all these different areas that I connect with people and Twitter and all. But then there's another side of it that I wanted to talk to you about it, and it may take us in a slightly different direction but but I wondered about the hive consciousness of of somebody who you know the the element of of that quick bit of information that you pick up online that allows you to get in line attacking something and not something or somebody or an idea anonymously and how it can run away we had an experience with intellectual property with a bill called SOPA which was about being able to, for the Justice Department to be able to to close down websites offshore that were that were stealing, you know, that were pirating, yeah. And there was a huge social response to it that was driven by, you know, by, by the fear that you're you're going to be you're going to lose your internet if you allow this bill to go on. And it, people that I know care about music, care about music music creators being able to make a living. These people, those people that I know, were just totally misinformed and. and and, and living in fear, joined this huge movement to keep something that would have been helpful to to uh, to all of us from happening. And I wonder if your mm. thoughts about that. I do have one thought about that, Paul. So one of the things that grew out of my book, as I said, is I'm now actually unexpectedly working in the technology world myself, and that problem of um, the online discourse being. Um, kind of relatively, um, you said hive mind, um, I think it's really kind of chaotic and often not productive and very superficial, okay? Yes. And so I have set out to try and solve that in the last year here at the Media Lab and working with an undergraduate developer. We have developed a, um, a new platform that we haven't tried out yet in the real world, but but it works. Um, for having a one-on-one structured back and forth about any topic where two people who disagree about something can have a kind of thing of like five rounds of I say, I say X, you say Y, and we wow, have a real nice. dialogue, almost like Socrates, you know, back and forth, and try to get somewhere with it. And because Step it into a digital ante room and have this conversation. Yeah, and always just two people and very structured, and you have to get it done by the end of the fifth round because you're done then. And I think we need to be able to connect with people within the larger conversation one-on-one more yes. so we can really have conversation, and that's the point of this thing. Um, and so I think, you know, that's just one innovation, but I think we need to take this Tower of Babel and give it a little more structure and depth because right now it's really taken us nowhere. Love that, love that. What, Thank you. When I want to go, I want to go to a back to the book a second because without giving away the book, but yep. it's important I think that people hear about it and and then sort of a little bit what you learned from these people throughout history. You have yes. your seven philosophers of the screen. You call them. Yep. 
Yep. Who are they, Bill? So, uh, so there's seven. I'll name them. I think I probably probably best for time reasons not to go through each one. Yeah, yeah, no, maybe, don't go through what they did because I want people to buy this book. But you yeah, know, I and, can maybe tell you my favorite or something. Yeah, but, I'd like um, your favorite, and then I'd like just a little bit about what what, what little info of how people can go forward. Phaedra. And how, how, yes. <laughs> how people can go forward and 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 learn from a little bit, but then they they do have to buy the book. Everyone has to buy right. Hamlet's Blackberry. Now, so right. who are the seven philosophers of the screen? Thank you for the plug, too. Um, so the seven are, as we know, we talked about Socrates, but in that case, I actually named the chapter after Plato because he wrote the story down. So the first one's Plato. Um, the second one is Seneca, who was a great Roman philosopher and also a statesman, and I think he's my favorite, actually. The third one is Gutenberg, who, of course, invented the printing press and was, in a way, a kind of a philosopher, although he was uh, mostly an inventor. Um, the fourth one is Ben Franklin, who, of course, we know was an inventor and also a philosopher and had some amazing things to teach us. Um, the fifth one is, oh, no, I, I left out Shakespeare. I'm sorry. Shakespeare came before Franklin. So Shakespeare with the Hamlet moment, and then Ben Franklin, and then Henry David Thoreau, the famous uh, Thoreau, uh, the famous Walden recluse who ran away from civilization, but actually, as I point out in the chapter, didn't, and was trying to solve the same problem that we're trying to solve today, effectively, but in the age of the telegraph. And then the last one is Marshall McLuhan, the wonderful media philosopher of the mid-20th century, who had some wonderful lessons to teach us about an electronic world. And they all kind of come to the same, in different ways, the same conclusion, don't they? Yeah, they all kind of basically say, and the reason I put them in the book, when I sold the book idea to my publisher, I didn't plan to use these people. I just planned to be inspired by them as I wrote. I didn't plan to tell their stories, basically. But the more I read their stories and thought about them, the more I kept coming back to this wonderful sense of... um, almost fellowship with these people because they were going through what we're going through. They were basically concluding, wow, this is a lot to deal with every day. This technology thing that's blossoming all around me is really shaking my life up. And I have a sense of feeling spinning out of control. And I have a sense of inability to kind of piece my thoughts together the way I used to. And I'm really stressed out and I need to figure out a way to deal with this. And every one of those philosophers has an approach that's a little bit different, but they all come back to this idea of you got to work some disconnectedness into the equation and put a little bit of distance between yourself and your connected life. Do, do you think, Bill, and you know, not, none of us having lived in that time or gone through any of those changes, do you think the fact that because you know the, when the alphabet came in, it was one thing you could read. Not everyone did read when, and then when the Gutenberg Bible came out, it still printed material wasn't really available to everyone because not everybody could afford it or had access to it just by the way the world was situated and the way transportation was and what have you. Do you think because now because of the internet and because the devices are available almost to everyone because of their price points ranging from very cheap to more expensive, mm-hmm. and the fact that Everything is there. You know, I mean, if you picked up a book, you didn't have necessarily porn and gambling and shopping and your best friend and, you know, a sex site. And you, I mean, it's the fact is... I'll buy that book, incidentally, (laughs) when when you find it. But I mean, you know, Polly calls it, you know, the devil delivers on the internet. But the truth is, you know, 
it's fun out there. It's fun. You lose yourself. I mean, I'll be working. All of a sudden, I'll be on Facebook, and I'll be at someone's destination wedding who I don't even know just to avoid yeah, having to yeah, you know, concentrate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I'm like, oh, look at those bridesmaids. Dresses. Wait, I don't know this person in Cabo. Um, so do you find, because this has, on one aspect, is so much more fun than anything else that's come along, that it yeah. has a certain, you know, like the Snapchat. I don't Snapchat, but, you know, my kids, and clearly your son, too, addicted to Snapchat. And, and when I'm doing something stupid, Lucy will be doing it. You're Snapchatting me, aren't you? You're going to send that out into the world. Um, but do you think because it's more fun, we're just much more attracted and attached and addicted? Because I think now they've opened up, and you know this, um, they've opened up rehab facilities for people who are addicted to the internet. Uh, there's one up in, in uh, Northern, um, Nor- I think it's in Oregon or outside of Portland. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's one in Philadelphia, I think, as well. Yeah, so, I mean, it is an addiction, whereas, let's say, reading is... No one would ever say you're addicted to reading and call that bad. I mean, this is an addiction, and and it It, is really going into people's lives. The fear of missing out, taken to the extreme. So it it is, can you address, it is very different than anything that has come before it. It is different in... um, in certainly in intensity, I think one of the things that's true about all technological innovations that are kind of media innovations of the past is that on some level, in the early years of whatever the revolution was, a lot of what gets produced by people trying to make money is stuff that kind of plays to our some of our kind of lower instincts, if you will. You know, the short attention span stuff, the what what Paul just described as, you know, the fear of missing out. Uh, anxiety that we all have sort of wired into us, um, you know, the, the you name it, you know, there's, there's all the, the porn aspect of it, which of course, you know, everybody has those drives and suddenly you can, you know, you can be pursuing them on a device 24-7. Round the want. clock, round the and clock. And that's a real, <laughs> busy, imagine, busy, imagine, busy. I can't imagine being a 15-year-old boy with this device, you know, I don't know how they get through the day, really. Um, so <laughs> I've heard they all, don't. <laughs> you know, it happened with magazines, that's what he, how Hugh Hefner got rich, you know, and, and now it's happening in a, as you say, Tracy, in a more intense way, and yes, so it's all the more difficult, and that's why I think we need new strategies and new tools, and this kind of connects to the recovery movement. I think that the most powerful tool we can possibly have in the end, really, is basically a philosophy, a kind of like you guys do in your book. You know, your book is a philosophical book, really, with practical applications, and that's what I tried to write as well. You need a way of thinking about your life that turns into a method for getting through the day that allows you to have the kind of balanced, happy, fulfilling, connected to other people life in a positive way that you really should have and, and, and ought to have as a human being and not waste your days being a prisoner of anything, including your device, including pornography, including pictures of celebrities, whatever. It's, it, it's just a, a way of rethinking how you're navigating this revolution. That's all that's needed. And what would you, we always love to ask experts, uh, if you could give us five tips, and not giving your book away or what you're doing at MIT away or anything else, but five things that people can write, who are listening right now, can write down, can take to heart and apply. What Five things that we can all do. I'd like to know them. But what does Bill Powers say we can do just to still stay connected, still do our work, still be productive, still have a good time and, and post right. those pictures and see our friends and do all the things that we'd like to do 
And, you know, you love your music. I love fashion. You know, there's all these places out there where we can go and, and relax even. Right. But keep our lives, keep our centers, and, and keep our sanity at the same time. Okay. So, yeah, I can give you, I mean, I'm, I'm going for five right off the top of my head, but I think I can do it. So, so number one, number one would be that you can use time, literally the clock, to organize your digital life in a way so that you have more mental space and you have time to breathe and, and have a little disconnection. And the way to do that is very simple. You just have times of the day or days of the week when you promise yourself you're going to go off some or all of your devices. And I don't say all of your devices, even though I have experience doing that with what my family calls the Internet Sabbath, where we we invented this before I wrote the book, where we went offline as a family every weekend for two days, Saturday and Sunday, every weekend. We were disconnected completely for two days. We did that for five years. That's kind of an extreme example. It yielded amazing benefits, but I think there's a version of that management of time that everybody can do where you do little pieces of the day or one day a week where you're just less connected than the devices are kind of tempting you to be and maybe forcing you to be on some level, you can push back. So number one is to use time more effectively. Number two is you can use space more effectively. You can actually organize your living space, whether you live in a big house or a little tiny apartment. You can have spaces that are your, I call them Walden zones after Thoreau's cabin. You can have places in your life you can go to that are kind of no devices zones. And I have found that to be a very useful tool for staying kind of more balanced about my digital connectedness and and being able to sort of flee to that room where we don't use devices. I think that's a great method for people. The third thing is to work some empathy into your digital life. I think we tend to view our digital connections and our apps and our inboxes and all these things we're doing, we kind of view them as, in a sense, the machines that they are. You know, it's sort of a mechanism that we've added to our lives and forget because the real person, the, the body, is not in front of us when we're connecting with these folks. We forget that we're actually exchanging messages with a full-blooded person. And remember that when you're sending out an email and you're copying 15 people on it or 35 people or whatever, you're actually adding a burden to their day. You're actually adding some overload to their life. Was that necessary? Do you really need to add that comment to that Facebook post when somebody else just said something very similar above you? Can there be a little silence in your relationships with other people that might be helpful? The fourth uh, principle I would uh, throw in is to remember that with people – and this is kind of an idea to remember as part, you know, you guys do that with, um, with your ideas to meditate on and to, to follow every day. This would be to remember that more is not necessarily better when it comes to human connectedness. This idea, I call it digital maximalism in the book. The more connected you are, the better. The more friends you have, the more followers you have, the better. That is absolutely demonstrably not true. The more people you're connected to, the less time and care and attention you have to devote to any one of those people. And that is really a problem in a digital world because you don't want to lose that sense of close connection that I try and describe in that section with my mom, which is so, so, so important to me. And and we all have those relationships, and you don't want them to be impoverished by this otherwise very wonderful revolution that we're living through. 
The fifth thing I would give people as a takeaway, and this is almost my extra credit assignment because it's something that you would have to look up on the Internet to find, but it can be found. My favorite philosophical essay of all time, and it's relatively short, is a piece by William James called On a Certain Blindness in Human Beings. On a Certain Blindness in Human Beings. If you just Google that phrase between quotes, various versions of it will come up. And as you guys know, William James was this philosopher of the late 19th, early 20th century who invented the field of psychology in the United States. He also inspired um, the Alcoholics Anonymous movement, which became the broader recovery movement with his ideas. Wonderful person who not just, wasn't only very smart, as all great philosophers are, but very human and very humane. And this essay, this blindness that he refers to in the essay, is about our tendency to race through life and be blind to the present, to always be looking out at something out in front of us, like the the mouse racing around the maze with the little piece of cheese dangling in front of it, and it can never quite get there, and forgetting to live in the here and now and to be really present to our experience, to the things around us. I'm looking at trees right now that are outside my window here on the Charles River, these beautiful trees that are just glowing in the sunlight today of October. Amazing thing to experience. I'm able to do it because I'm talking to you guys on the phone and not actually staring at a screen. So suddenly, just because I was talking about William James in that essay, I remembered actually to look at that tree. The same goes for the people around you, the people who are physically around you. Don't discount them by burrowing into the screen all the time. You will be giving into that blindness and becoming a victim of it. James describes it beautifully in this essay, and if anything I've said in this podcast has been meaningful to people, I would add that as the icing on the cake. I think they would really enjoy reading it. I think you're describing something that I, I, I describe as the elegance of kindness. You know, it's, yes. it's, it's the, the kindness of, of, of using your devices and, and remembering that you're affecting lives on the other end with that. You know, I, I wish that I'd, I'd actually gotten a, a, a comment out earlier before you did the, your five things, because now it's going to sound like I'm jumping on your train, but I actually I was having a very Pali Lama moment where the Pali Lama was observing some things about your life that suggested that I had an idea where you might go with your next book. Oh, and it began me, with me. it began with listening to a podcast where somebody called in and asked about what the you know the absence of you know you, you have an affection for the eastern philosophy and, and zen and, and the and in the you know the like but it was you, uh, you made a choice to keep that out of out of Hamlet's Blackberry and really deal with the western culture and, and our approach to to the social media and the like and all. And yeah. then a little later as as we're talking today and that was so this was listening to a, a previous podcast then as, we're, as we're, we're talking to you today, you tell this wonderful story about your son mm-hmm. asking about Zen and Zed, Dad, why haven't you... you know, and, and as I listen to you know, the, the Walden's moment in, in, of your five, the five things you've listed, this, mm-hmm. and then James, I go, oh my God, is the next book, in fact, moving towards that spiritual life, you know, of, of living a, a full spiritual life and within, within the, the, the digital age? And it, it's, it's, it seems like you have a a real leaning in that direction there's and it, there's certainly a magnetism for me as somebody whose life was saved you know by the the philosophy and the principles that that, that James talks about uh, it's it's something that that I wonder if if that isn't kind of where you're headed 
Oh, great question. Thank you for the idea, Polly Lama. It's a, <laughs> it's a really good suggestion. I will answer you by saying that it may have been one of, in one of the podcasts you heard, but basically when I was writing this book, I had no idea, the current book, Hamlet's Blackberry, I had no idea that I was writing a spiritual book because I took for granted that I have this kind of point of view on the world that everybody must have. And talk about lack of empathy. I had never thought of myself as a spiritual person and that I was different from anybody else. And as soon as the book came out, I started touring around, being at bookstores and so forth and talking about it. People, there would always be somebody who would raise their hand and say, I'm so happy. Thank you for writing a book about technology that's also a spiritual book. I haven't seen one of those before. And my first response was, what are you talking about? You know, and they would be incredulous, and they would say, "But your book is just full of spiritual moments. You're with your mom, you know, all these things." And that's one thing I discovered after the book came out. And I have been thinking along the lines because I am such an avid reader of philosophy, like the people I've been mentioning, James and Zen and so forth, and right straight on spirituality, like Thomas Merton is a famous is a is a favorite writer of mine. Um, why not take that step and sort of write about that dimension of life in a digital time and how is it changing? Do we need new strategies? You know, what's happened to spirituality and to that part of our existence? So I may run with that, Paul. Yeah, please do. I think you're already headed out there, and, it, and, and it's, it's what you brought to this conversation. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a sweetness in, in, in that intellect and in, the, in that conversation that, uh, that I, keep, I just lean into. I want more of that. I love hearing Thank that. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. What do you What do you say, Bill? And, and when you just said, and, and I agree with you. It's in it. You you talk about the corollary, the two corollaries that being disconnected is is the worst thing, and and being connected is the best. Well, I I've mixed them up, but um, to be disconnected is good, and to be disconnected is bad, and to be connected is good, and to be connected is bad. You know, they, yeah. this, this this these two things that are rat, you know battling it out in our psyches. Um, in our lives, when you say, you know, and I agree with you about the more friends is not the best way to go because my Facebook page I have hovering under 5,000 because I don't want a fan page. Right, but right. because I hate that, I hate like, oh, now you have to be my fan. But at the same time, you know, I, I, you reach out because we're all, you, Paul, and I are in the business of making product, selling product, and, and mm-hmm. online now is the way that really that has become one of the number one ways of getting our message and our ideas out there it's you mm-hmm. know that advertising's changed and what have you so it's it's also not only a social mechanism and a social tool it's a business tool as well mm-hmm. uh, you know so a lot of times even with the podcast you know we'll have a guess how many how many twitter followers do they have we're almost we're we're classified and categorized now oftentimes probably yeah. more times than we should be in our accomplishments and our popularity and whatever, how many Twitter followers do you have? How many Facebook mm-hmm. friends do you have? How? So what's what's your Amazon ranking? I mean, you and you yeah. know this is an author. You know when you're first in that in the first Amazon hell of a book, you know. Yeah. Oh my God, I, yeah. And not even understanding what that Amazon algorithm is about, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. how, so how do you balance those two things? You know, because I think it's really hard. Yes, it is, but I think that one one you know one of the reasons I went back in history is that I think we can take great solace from the fact and it really is a fact that all those things you've just described 
have been around in different versions from the beginning of civilization, from the beginning of society. I have read Chinese philosophers who are older than the Greeks, preceding ancient Greece, talking about everybody being in this unbelievable rat race and everybody being obsessed all day with whose whose rank is above whose in the imperial court or wherever they were fighting to, you know, have the most clout, K-L-O-U-T, or however we spell it today. And so it's part of who we are. You know, we're social animals. We're competitive animals. We have these Darwinian drives that are, you know, trying to keep us in the game and survive and thrive and all that stuff. So remind yourself that this is part of who you are. And at bottom, I don't think it's intrinsically evil. You know, I just think it's, it's, it's a part of the kind of the big, beautiful mess that is being a human being. And you just have to not let these devices take it to the bad place, you know, because when I read these philosophers from ancient China, that's what they're reminding us, that in their time, there were people who became hostage to that and allowed it to take over their lives. And they became victims of this blindness that William James writes about. You know, they became blind to the best things in life, the best moments, the best people, the best kinds of relationships. You just have to not let it dominate. Of course we have to do all those things. I mean, I went on Twitter because I had a book coming out. Yeah. And I That's how we met. Sure, of course. You and, I, you and I met on Twitter. Yeah, we met on Twitter, and thank God, you know. Yeah, no, so true. Huge... But the Chinese also had rank badges. If you remember in that yeah. era, they all walked around with the bat, their bat, with their rank on their on their robes. <laughs> you know, they, Is they, that it, right? I didn't know that. Yeah, they had rank badges, so they amazing. Yeah, so they actually, if they walked in the room, someone knew sort of where they stood in the pecking order. Uh, oh, they didn't. They didn't oh, have. They, had, they didn't have a Twitter feed that they could check, but they did have. <laughs> they did have ways of announcing their importance, and, and I think now that Twitter, these things have become the way we rank our importance in many cases. So. I I think yeah. people are reluctant to turn people away because then even if you don't know them, you're turning away a possible buyer of a book or a possible, you know, oh my gosh, now I've got 15,000 followers or whatever that may be. You know, I think that yeah. that's become so much part of our psyche and our mentality is, is our own, you know, my children think, my girls, if, you know, if they don't get X amount of likes on a picture of a piece of sushi, that they're all of a sudden, they're not the human being they were before they took the picture of the sushi. And it's like, Lucy, it's a piece of sushi honey, it's not your inner being, you know, it's just a, a, a piece of sushi that you've photoshopped. Um, one, one thing that I remind myself, I mean, you're exactly right, we're all doing that, I see the kids doing it like you do, Tracy, but one thing you have to remind yourself is that really that incremental extra 10 tweets you're going to do to do the promotion for whatever you happen to be promoting, you know, this month, or the sushi that you happen to be trying to sell today or whatever, that's actually not the thing that really, in the end, is going to drive the success of whatever your product is, whatever your creation is, whatever that thing is. It's the quality of the thing itself. Mm. You know, I still sing Paul's songs in my head all these, gener- you know, decades later because they're so damn good, you know. and oh, kind. Thank you. They are good. True. They're good you songs. Paulie does good. Paulie gives they're... good song. <laughs> yes. So, so if, 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 if what you can do with your talent today, young person, I would say, is sit in a room and focus on a create kind of creativity that is your special gift to the world that you know is in there and you've been feeling it and you want to bring it out, focus on that. You know, social media are going to come and you're going to want to promote it and do the tweets about it and have the Facebook page and all that. But that is so secondary, tertiary. That is so far down the list after the creation itself. Sure. No, and you still have to do the work. You know, you still, you we do. all still have to write down. And I'm like you, Bill. I'm, I'm, I'm a total notebook person. I have 
hundreds of them. But you do still, however you do it, you got to write the song, write the book, go into the lab and do the research. You do still have to work. And, uh, and that, I think, is... I don't think that has changed. And I think you're right when you say... You know, and I think young people, some young people expect there's going to be a kind of pushing to the front of the line because all of a sudden someone gets discovered on YouTube and they get to miss a few steps of the I creative think process. I, but if, if I may, I think there's also a real gem in what you just said. And we, what's the A word that we talk about all the time on the podcast? Uh, anxiety. Uh, a word. A word. Authenticity. We talk oh. about well, you, authenticity. You, well, you do more than it's I one, do. It's one, yeah. But what's something that Bill just said that is that is key and I think needs, needs to be spotlighted, you know? And if I, if I slip back in, in, you were very kind in talking about my songs. If I go back to the first big, big hit that I had, which we've only just begun, when, oh, when the number one album oh, so was much. in, was in oh. Agata de Vida. The, what was commercially, uh, uh, what was happening, you know, in the world musically, commercially was so far away from that song it, it, you couldn't you it's you, you, you couldn't get further away from what was what was known to be commercially successful than that song but when and Karen Carpenter sang it and the world responded and and so the, the I think the message in that is that you know that the, to the people that are listening to the podcast the people that are reading your book that are listening to the statement you just made that I, I didn't want that point to, to, to be to slide by is be you. yourself and find you know find the, uh, the that that wonderful special uniqueness of who you are and and be thrilled when you find out that the rest of the world responds to that because they have the same it, it's a, it's part of our connectedness is that we we deal with the same emotions we have the same things in the center of our chest and uh, and I think that the bill and I think that's a great point but I and I do think Bill that it is what you accomplish in this book and why it is such an important book and even when you you know that that yes you know you and i met on twitter you've probably had an, I, we've all had really good experiences through these things that to be able to mm -hmm. use this technology keep it in balance and then have your walden moments and have your interior life and you I mean i had an experience yesterday that i and i was going to talk about with Polly before and i thought well i'm just going to share this on the podcast because i thought it was some kind of personal growth i um from, I never really wanted an Apple Watch from when they first came out. I thought, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't really, I'm not that. I know I don't need it, but I'm a kind of fashionista person, and I'm, you know, that's that's my thing. And and then mm. all of a sudden they announced that Hermes was making a special edition Apple Watch. I saw that. And yeah. I had a I, I had a connection that <laughs> the, the waiting list is seven years long or something. But I got a connection and I could have one of these. Mm. So yesterday I went into the shop. Um, here in Los Angeles, and, and they saved the special one for me that everyone in town wanted, and it was on my wrist, and my husband told me to buy it for myself, and <laughs> I stood there with it on, and the very nice person, specialist, was explaining all the little things to me, and, you know, and the little pictures were coming up, and the, and the tweetsies were coming up, and it was binging and banging and chirping and warping, and, 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 and it was chic, and I knew I'd walk out in the street, and I'd be, oh, wow, she's got that, you know, it... it and at the same time, not only was I worried about the, the, perhaps the toxicity to go into my body, but I thought, this is going to be the worst possible thing I can put on my body. You know, I mean, the fact that, that I could feel, I could feel the anxiety coming through the, the mechanism and going charging into my veins. And I thought, yes. and I said to the girl, I said, you know, doesn't this just make you nervous? And I mean, you're sitting and having a conversation. I mean, at least now I leave my purse, my phone in my purse. So I'm having lunch with someone and I don't, I thought if I have this thing on my wrist all the time and she goes, oh no, you know, every time someone texts you, every time someone and emails you, I said, I don't want to know every time someone texts me. I don't want to know every time someone emails me. And I thought, on one hand, 
the best, the worst side of my personality, this watch represents, which is status, fashion, having the latest thing, and being very beautiful. And the yeah. best side of my personality is needing some quiet time, not wanting to know everything, and not being connected 24-7. And if it's on my body, there's going to be no way of ever turning off. No. And I, And I very kindly and very gratefully handed it back and said call the first person on the wait list. And I walked out and I just Bravo. felt, you Bravo. know, and I, yeah. I actually did buy a purse. Bravo. All right. Okay. Confession. I bought a purse because I, I, they were really nice did. to me. I had to buy something, but, <laughs> but I mean, first, but I really, I did not want that bell. I did not well, want that on my body 24 seven. I thought this will be the, and Paula, you can't get one because we'll never see your face again. Yeah. But, but, know, oh no, I know. But what, you don't know, you I, think that that is? I mean, the whole. I know, mean, and, I, and I have Apple stock, so I don't want to ruin Apple. I'm not going to ruin Apple. But, but don't you think that that just takes it one step too far in many ways? I do, I do, and you know, I find it very ironic that um, Steve Jobs, who's I haven't seen the Steve Jobs movie yet, the new one, but he's famous for having been a Zen practitioner and for having all this Eastern spirituality. And here's his company, really taking it right to our bodies now, where we can never get away from it. And I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. I agree with you. I absolutely don't want it. Um, I, I try to go with my own, you know, uh, media additions to my life in the opposite direction. I, I talk in the book. I, I go into great, as you know, ecstasies about my moleskin notebooks. And I have actually been encouraged to see around uh, here in Cambridge at Harvard and MIT how the young people are all, all have moleskins now. And writing on that paper with the pen and the hard copy page and everything is just such a part of, of life in this supposed fast lane because people are trying to slow down. I see a hundred uh, Moleskine notebooks for every Apple Watch that I see in this supposedly very tech-savvy zone that I live in. So I think that's a good sign. Well, I don't think there's anything quite like writing. I mean, I... I... I mean, if you look right now, I'll take a picture and we'll tweet it out. I have in front of me a notebook with a pen on it. I, there's nothing like writing from the the brain to the hand to the paper. I, I don't think I anything will ever, ever top that. I mean, in, in, I keep a journal every day. And, the artist's way, morning pages. But, you know, and yeah, and journaling, I think, is a great... I don't, do you, what do you, how do you feel about journaling from in, into a notebook as, as a way of keeping yourself kind of... You know. I get up. I get up early every morning. I've started doing this since my book came out, so this isn't in the book. But I get up every morning. I try to be up before dawn, and I read a book by somebody else, some book that you know I'm working my way through. And at the same time, I do some writing in my journal, which isn't not 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 necessarily about the book I'm reading, but the book tends to spark thoughts about other things. And I just kind of do this free free journaling where anything can come out and it goes on the page, and it is the most therapeutic. Part Part of my day every single day. If when I don't do it, when it's a crazy day like today, actually, and I had to be out out the door at 5:30 a.m., I really, really miss it, and it's a big gap in my life. So yes, I think it's very powerful, and I see these 20-somethings doing it, and it just gives me a really good, hopeful feeling. Oh, I think it's fun. I mean, I've been journaling since I'm 15, and I and and, and for me, it's it's and I never stopped. And I think it's mm -hmm. the most. I, I've never met a notebook I don't like, and I think it's a great. <laughs> It's a great way of, of keeping your thoughts. You know, we could talk to you, lit I could talk to you literally forever, and I would love to, you know, hopefully we'll get to meet in person one of these days. And, I would and love have that. A face you guys are terrific. No, you are so inspirational. You're so wonderful. And he's handsome. I've seen his picture, guys, out oh. there. Just, oh, yeah, really. I mean, he seemed like the guy with everything. Um, no, and, you've made my day. And, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I've seen your picture. And you're, you're, we really you're, appreciate you On top you of all this, that. you're hot, Bill Powers. So, really, you're, you're smart, and, and you've given the world so much. And, Listeners, all of you guys who believe Paulie and me, who've read our book, who trust us, 
read Hamlet's Blackberry if you need. Read nothing else this year. It will change your life, and it will help you, and you will be able to, to hopefully, if you put Bill's practices into work, manage it all. Bill, you're a thank gem. You. Thank, yeah, you. thank you. Thank so you much. for sharing B- with blessings, us. Blessings and thanks, and we really look forward to the next book. I have a feel. I, I think the work you're doing right now is really, really important, and I look forward to the next writings as well. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Tracy. This has been just a pure pleasure, and I hope we meet in person someday. We'll, we'll, we will. Absolutely. We'll make Absolutely. that happen. Okay. okay. Have Take a care. great day. Thanks Bye-bye. so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. God bless. You give a little love, and it all comes back to you. You know you're gonna be remembered for the things that you say and do. You give a little love and it all comes back to you. You know you're gonna be remembered for.